I want to uh, introduce everybody to today's guest on the Seven Figures Club podcast, a man who has not only generated uh, seven figures, but actually nine and, and 10 figures throughout his business. He's a man who was made famous from the movie, The Wolf of Wall Street. And if you remember Matthew McConaughey's character uh, that he played, it was Mark Hanna. And we have the real Mark Hanna on today's show, on today's podcast. And if you think The Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort, who's got uh, some uh, amazing sales systems, if you think what he does is amazing, well, the guy who taught him basically everything he knows about sales is <laughs> Mark Hanna. And so I want to introduce you guys to Mark Hanna. He graduated from St. John's with an MBA in finance. And in the 80s and 90s, uh, he entered the, the finance world working for such massive companies as Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, L.F. Rothschild, Drexel Burnham, and more. In 86, in his very first year as a stockbroker, think about it. Think about your first job or business. You just get started. He earns over $1 million in commissions in his first year. He breaks every record in Wall Street. And then shortly thereafter, he's named Broker of the Year and promoted to Senior Vice President at L.F. Rothschild. And in 1988, that's when he was approached by Drexel Burnham, to take over as senior vice president where he helped more companies raise more capital. He trains hundreds of successful stockbrokers to close deals. And then uh, in 1990, he partners up with Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street, played by Leo DiCaprio in the movie. And they open up the infamous Stratton Oakmont in which they grew the firm from 30 to well over 500 personnel in just a few short years. In 1993, Mark started the Harriman Group, a small boutique brokerage house with 40 employees. By 95, they had grew to over 250 employees. He's raised hundreds of millions of dollars in capital, taken dozens of companies public, and earned nearly $100 million in commissions and profits over the years. So, and then of course, uh, later on, uh, there's uh, different challenges because we all deal with challenges as entrepreneurs and uh, Mark's going to talk about those challenges and how you can overcome those uh, throughout this podcast. So Mark, very excited to yes, have you Lord. on. Welcome <laughs> to the podcast. There are over 32 million businesses in the U.S. and over 90% of them will never break seven figures in annual sales. So how do we as entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs break into that seven figures club? This podcast will relentlessly share the secrets, strategies, and tactics I've used to create three multi-seven figures businesses and bring in even more successful entrepreneurs than me to share their inspirational stories and tactics to success. You can create your dream business in life right now. So buckle up and let's go. Thank you very much for having me, Leo. I do appreciate it. Perfect. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that history you know, as you got into that business, the, the stock brokerage business uh, in the mid-1980s, how in the world, just getting started, did you generate a million dollars in you know, commissions in your very first year? What were, the, what were the steps to success? For new entrepreneurs out there trying to launch something, how did you launch so quickly and so successfully? Well, you know, uh uh, it was a very unique experience for me, and I actually that's what I like to speak of because it was enormous success, and then later 
a fall. And very often when that happens, the initial uh, successes don't go, uh, aren't spoken of well enough. And the goodness, and there was so much good. When I say that, I mean from the point of view of as a young man coming out of New York City, Brooklyn, and I'd gone to Boston University and then Wagner College, I graduated with my Bachelor of Science, went on to get an MBA at St. John's local college here in New York. But with the St. John's MBA, it's, um, you know, not like Harvard and Yale, they're not recruiting you. And uh, you have to go out there and find out what you might want. I had come from family business in Brooklyn. My father ran a very big nightclub, a couple of them, over the 60-year period in Brooklyn, probably the biggest nightclubs in Brooklyn history. It was our family business, and it was a very big thing to me and my brothers growing up. And I always thought I'd be a part of that. We even had a, a, a restaurant at one point that was a, a very big one here in Brooklyn. But I, it didn't work out. During the years of college, my father's businesses were going downhill. I had to seek out what I was going to do on my own. With an MBA, I was a marketing and finance guy. But I still didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. As I sought it out, I, I found that sales, I thought, would be good for me. That's why I think later when we talk about the success and how much people make, and some people can do it, some people cannot. I don't believe it's completely natural, but I do believe you kind of have to have uh, a certain, you have to, if you're not born with it, you have to develop certain traits, of course, if you're going to be a salesperson. And that's got to be communication skills, likability, persistence and perseverance, the basic tenets. I was always social, I was outgoing, and I was more that than I was bookish. So I wanted something where communications, my words, would be a part of uh, my, my career. And I also love the fact that in sales, although they didn't pay you much very often, sky was the limit. So I was seeking out jobs in that area in sales and marketing, and Wall Street was, became a big issue in the early 1980s. During my time on, at St. John's, I worked at Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers in the summers in the back office operations, where I began to hear about Wall Street and really the uh, goings-on of the entire investment banking uh, area. You know, from trading, investment banking, institutional sales, retail sales, and then back office operations. So working back office while I was going through school made me recognize, I think for me, I'd like to be a trader or a salesman. Investment banking, institutional sales sounds great, but I knew it was very difficult to break in. Very difficult to break into trading as well and with the major Wall Street firms. It's either top, top candidates from the best schools only, uh, people who are connected one way or another. And trading was a difficult one to get into because it can be very lucrative for bond traders or, or stock traders. Investment banking was even beyond that. That was usually for only the very best. Uh, from the Ivy League schools. And then, even as a retail salesman, which was what I sought out, that was notorious for being the lowest rung of the ladder 
Um, and it was not really the hot area where people earned great, great money. They were just taught to be financial advisors and salesmen, like at Merrill Lynch, or back then, so many of the firms that are now out of business, Prudential, Beish, um, Smith Barney, many, who I actually interviewed with. Even then, as I graduated with my master's, I had gone through some interviews with major firms who said, we only hire a few a year, like First Boston, Morgan Stanley, Solomon Brothers. I finally landed an interview with a firm by the name of L.F. Rothschild Unterberg Tobin. It was a medium-sized investment bank. They'd been around 100 years. L.F. Rothschild had merged with Unterberg Tobin to form one company, and they were known for their technology, initial public offerings, research in technology, and research in municipal bonds. But they were hiring now a group of stock brokers like I would be. You would first be hired as an assistant to a broker. You would be on the phones all day, which meant 8 o'clock until 6, 7 at night. Saturdays as well, very often, if you chose to. And you were telemarketing, along with some direct mail, to people, wealthy individual investors all over the United States. As I joined, I took the job, and they paid me very, very little the first few months. I was an assistant that was paid minimum wage back then, and I also uh, was given a percentage of the leads I would give to my stockbroker if he were to open the account. So most of the time, you start out kind of in that setter role. So it sounds like you started out you know, setting up uh, deals and then passing them to the closer who was your stockbroker. Is that how it worked? Well, no, not exactly. It was okay. you were on the phone the entire time with what yeah. we called a prospecting or qualifying call. And that became very, very important. After a while, you tired of it if you were a more talented and intelligent person. You needed to do more. But initially, it was to take a list, and we would buy targeted lists. This was really in the beginning, in the 80s and in the 70s, it was the beginning of marketing via telephone in a very intense professional manner. But it was being done now at Lehman Brothers was the main firm. Even though I was at Rothschild, a number of these brokers had come from Lehman, and Lehman gained a reputation of developing rooms, a couple of them here in New York City, where all the brokers were making huge amounts of money. And there was a system and a way, and language was the key. They gave us, which I had at Rothschild, stuff from Lehman very often, that was circulated around all of Wall Street, and I talk about that later, because we go into many firms, and these, these firms they call, say, boiler rooms later, or what right. Wolf of Wall Street showed as a boiler room. Well, the, the major firms that I worked for for years had the same exact thing. And they were not boiler room. So one of the papers I've written, I say papers because I write a lot, but it's, they've not been necessarily in books. But one article I did write was about boiler rooms and brokerage houses. And with the reality, what are we talking about? It's a label. If you are a professional, when I had my company, and I'm very different than Jordan also, and that I don't view later what I did, I always thought what I was doing was completely legal. Because it always was. Now, even while I made my millions at Rothschild and Drexel, I became a certified millionaire within a year or two. So for the, so, the so first what, five years. How, what was the process like? Like, how did you excel at the sales system so quickly? And you're doing all this over the phone. 
So how do you, how were you able to connect with someone who had money, gain their confidence, and then provide the solution that they were looking for? What, what, what's that process like? Well, I think what it comes down to is a few things. Number one, as I've said, first, you have to know exactly what you're doing precisely, who you are and what you're selling. And that becomes very specific. In the stock brokerage business, every guy was different. That's what allowed me to do so well was I had leeway. When I've said before, and I've written an article called, I'm not your financial advisor. I was a, what they used to call a stock jockey, which was basically that I would have an individual stock or two and bring them to my clients. Now, from day one, when I came in, I did not come from family money to that extent. Well, because a lot of stockbrokers back in the day were wealthy young guys who came from wealthy families who had to bring a book with them. Otherwise, they don't get hired. Here, this was for young guys and, and Lehman, as well as Rothschild, hiring MBAs like me. Some lawyers even took these jobs. Mm. And it was a system where intensely, first of all, not only knowing what your product is, what, who you, you are within your company and within the industry, so you're going to communicate that, but you also then have to know uh, exactly to, what to do on the marketing end, meaning we first began with the proper uh, procedure, meaning you buy the right list. That's not, these are not leads. Let's qualify the names. This is a list, but thousands of names. We were thinking big and we acted big, and it was a game of numbers. It was quantity as much as quality, but it was quality as much as quantity as well. So basically, you buy a phenomenal list. In our case, what did that mean? These were business owners throughout the United States and London and some uh, Sydney, Australia. I did a bit of European business, but mostly the United States. They were individuals who owned businesses with net worth uh, of a certain size, minimum of $2 million. Within that group, uh, we would also have doctors, lawyers, professionals, but mostly entrepreneurs. Then we would call that list intently, even from the beginning, because I proved to be so good within a couple of weeks, they had a young guy working under me who would connect me, and I would do the talking on the initial call. We called the initial call the prospecting call or the qualifying call. So many people know about this now, and it's been changed, and you hear so many people over the phones, by the way, that are uh, amateurish, not professional, and we were the exact opposite. However, that did not change the fact, even then, that 90% of the people who pick up the phone find this to be, were not interested in hearing anything from you and didn't view this as a great moment that you were calling them. But it was slightly better than it probably is today where it's much, much more saturated. Okay, this is the beginnings of that. But it had been going on for, for quite a while when I began in the early 80s. However, you had to know, and I learned, the trick to getting good leads. And I was fantastic at that. I proved to be the best prospector at the firm of maybe 200 young guys. I was by far number one. Even after a while, they found out how good I was, and they moved me to the top broker. Hmm. So why was I so great at that? Because I just learned the tricks and the key, the skills that needed to not only uh, get a guy to talk, but to allow him, yes, to just give me a moment, please. And it, the funny thing is, I was always known for being uh, refined, well-spoken, 
and never loud or yelling, never that type. Mostly, uh, it was you had to be likable. Your voice had to connotate, right, the tonality. I've talked, Jordan speaks about that a lot. My tone, this basically is a performance, we learned. You're an actor. And the role you're in right now is super salesman. I saw myself, I had always very high self-esteem, a lot of confidence from the time I was a young guy. Maybe it comes from coming from a good family. That's what I mean about teaching people. You, can, you don't know. You can't promise people, yes, you're all going to get rich. I speak to groups of people and I say, sorry, you're not all going to get rich. <laughs> because you have to be very willing. That's number one. Anybody can do this, though. And they can do it well. But you have to make the effort to do it. And I wanted it and I loved it, by the way. Nobody spoke as well as me. I went a little crazy. I was obsessed. I think every great uh, entrepreneur success at one point was obsessive compulsive toward their business. And I was for those first few years. And after that, I didn't have to do much because I opened up individually thousands of accounts on my own in the stock market. And the reason I made millions was because I became to be very savvy about the market itself through many uh, influences and information at our firm, LF Rothschild, but not only, they're everywhere on the street, traders as well. And I was able to not only land major clients, whales, which is a big thing I've written about, fishing for whales, mm. and how then to keep people up and to promote your product in a bigger way with more size, bigger purchases, more people saying yes for bigger size. But the other thing I did was I gravitated towards uh, more trading, which in my business, where commissions were had on the buy and on the sell, and everyone talks about diversification, long-term uh, goals, we did involve some shorter-term trading strategies. Mm. So, so that's how so, I made so, money. So if you're an entrepreneur, aspiring entrepreneur, yes. sales is the lifeblood of your business, and that's right. what you focused on. And so some of your keys to success were you're an expert in your products. You're yes. an expert at knowing what sets your company apart from the rest. Right. And, and then what sets you apart from all of the other stockbrokers out there. And that's the same with sales today, right? You have to set yourself apart. You have to set your company apart. And then it sounds like you, you're listening, you're asking the right questions to your clients, and then you're very well targeted. Too often, I think entrepreneurs start off and they don't know who their dream client is they want to work with, but your avatar was very uh, focused. Like, you know, I'm working with business owners and their business is, you know, does $2 million a year at least and they've got assets. There's some doctors and lawyers, but you knew who your perfect client was and then you went about attracting them and getting them on the phone. And, and at the beginning, you did a lot of cold calling. So how, how did those conversations go in which you're able to, you know, connect on a cold call very quickly with someone because you maybe had five, 10 seconds to connect and kind of get their attention. How did you do that? Yes, and that's actually very important because the key to what I teach and what we did so successfully was lead generation. And it's changed today from then, where I would use the internet much more so today. And that's what I have done over these past few years. Whenever we're generating leads for any sales campaigns, and I've been involved with quite a few different companies and industries, um, I think for me the thing that I teach that's essential 
Joe. I mentioned to you, of course, the quantity. You have to know when you're first starting to get leads, you call it cold calling, you have to have the energy or the apparatus, the, mecha, the machinery that's going to contact many, many people. Right? You're looking for a large this is mass marketing in a sense. So if it whittles down to just a few actual sales, it still has to go to hundreds of leads possibly. So you have to figure out a system where there's, that's even feasible. You know, I know it's still feasible completely because I still have done it up until this day. Uh, you know, over the last, literally, it's been how many, 30 years. Back then, though, the one thing, a little few of the tricks that I recognize, as I've said, you have to be smart about the lead, uh, the initial list you either purchase or you ascertain. Then, when I was doing it, one of the very key things was we would call... Uh, throughout the day. The moment uh, the prospect was on the phone, you would simply say, sir, I, I appreciate you taking the time. I will come right to the point. But I tried to rid really with that. I was in phone sales, so it's my voice. I made my voice sound um, warm, decent, but also respectful of the number one thing is their time you're in the service business ultimately, so you have to be a bit deferential almost. So it's a question of you cannot be loud and uh, idiotic in any way. You almost have to have a soothing, decent, quick. There's a psychological effect, honestly, if you have a strong, but firm, but very uh, de decent, quick thing to say to someone. Hello. They do not usually just immediately hang up on you. Okay, people are decent. And when you're almost apologizing for the intrusion, which I did, uh, it worked very, very well. And I would also say, is this a good time? So I needed just a moment. My name is Mark Hanna. I represent L.F. Rothschild Lunterberg Tobin. We're the investment bankers in New York. And you would do that for anything these days. Now, there's adjustments over time, different businesses, as I've said. Lead generation has changed. And, and, and it's actually easier because now instead of buying a list, whether through websites or some way of incoming leads, people who are calling you first, now that is your lead base. It's a sl different sales process. It's almost well, an easier sales process because people can come to you. You can attract them much easier. But the phone conversation you're explaining is the same. You're identifying who you are. And you know what I love? I love that line that you're saying where you're like, let me get right to the point because it, it seems like too many people spend so much time building rapport and people don't have a, a patience for that. Even then, you are, let me get right to the point. I bet people appreciated that. Let me say, Leo, I was famous for that. I truly was. They said I was a master. I never spoke uh, on and on and on. And I had a few friends with me who never did well. They, they, I used to call them, what was that? That was what we used to call the babbling close. Yes. All right. And many people get nervous during the closing aspects. We teach closing as the primary aspect of the sales uh, process. Closing is, is the most important thing. But you're not getting there, excuse me for one moment, without lead generation. And you're not getting to closing without a powerful sales presentation but the lead process you have to master first it's true and it is a uh for me 
I truly did become a professional telephone salesman as well as being a, an, uh, a, a broker, a stock broker. But that is, I viewed that back then as something to be accomplished on a high level. There was a guy named Marty Shafroff. He was the top broker at Lehman Brothers. And he was my mentor, master. I never met him, but the books he'd written. Successful telephone sales in the 70s, 80s. And he had always stressed, you're an actor. And that kind of um, reverberated with me. But what I also realized, it's language and communication. So when I would immediately, if a man, a gentleman, and I say man, it was 95% men from the ages of, say, 40 through 75 years old. And when I say to you the $2 million, that was the minimum. Most of these people's net worths were 5, 10, and 25 million and up. And I had whales who were 100 million, and I had several of those in the first few months of my doing business. So it was a unique time. The moment that I was allowed in on that first uh, call, and they said to me, yes, uh, they said, go ahead, meaning what do you have to say? Again, you, you said it before, Leo. I made it brief to the point, and in that little few, couple of sentences, I connotated or to this individual several things. One, I had a very firm, authoritative, and confident voice. That told him that I was firm, confident, and authoritative, <laughs> and knowledgeable, and thorough, and everything you want, particularly with someone you might give your money or investment to. Okay? And then even beyond that, I was able to promote the firm. We were the L.F. Rothschild Unterberg Tobin. I said it in a most regal, noble manner. Okay? So to, to give off the impression of what we actually were which was a major investment banking firm on Wall Street. Nice. Then so, a couple of key sentences, and that would be it. Outstanding. And, and, so elicit some, and elicit some information, of course, from them that was key to the next call. Perfect. Let, let me ask you, how did you uh, and Jordan Belfort, The Wolf of Wall Street, how did you guys meet up? Is it uh, similar to how the movie shows where he starts his first day and uh, you're the senior broker there. How, how did that uh, work out that you yes. guys ended up uh, beginning to work together? How did that? That uh, is actually very funny. And it is, no, the movie was very true in certain ways and other ways, not at all. But certain ways it was true. Jordan had been hired as one of the cold callers like I had been in the previous years. When he came in, it was a room of a few hundred guys. L.F. Rothschild, Unterberg, Tobin. It's 1987. Just the beginning of 87, probably, or late 86. I already had a few big years under my belt. I was the number one salesman, not only at this office, throughout the United States and, the, and actually the globe for L.F. Rothschild in those years. Aside from maybe a couple of managers, top guys, within the sales force, I became the biggest, highest earning commission salesman. I was monthly earning over $100,000 a year. And, you know, that leads to some other discussion later as a different subject to some of the issues. It was a unique time. There were reasons for making money of that size. However, Jordan, being hired then, uh, came to work under me, and I did get to become friendly with him. Uh, we became pretty good friends, even though 
uh, he was just starting out. And there were so many people, and I was a very busy guy. Everyone knew me, and everyone came to talk to me. But Jordan and I became friends, and I saw from the beginning that he was very different. I'm from Brooklyn. He was from Queens. We were both weightlifters, and he was two years younger than me, but he was a smart guy. He had gone to American University, was on his way to dental school. This famous story that always amused me about Jordan, he was in dental school and the first day, and the professor said, if you're in dentistry to make money, you should leave now because it's no longer the profession for that. Jordan got up and left. <laughs> so he then went into the meat and seafood business. He speaks about some of this, and he owned a few trucks. He did very well young selling meat and seafood. He also speaks of when he sold ices on the beach. The point of the matter is, I could see he was like me. I was a Brooklyn kid. He's a Queens guy. He's a smart guy. He was a, a little hustler. bit hustler we were. We right. were not just bookish guys. I may have an MBA. He may be from American University. But we're, we're not street kids either. We come from good families. But we're, we're New Yorkers, you know, and where there's a little something. I don't know, raw. We were tough guys, too, a little bit, you know? Absolutely. I know I was as well. So the, the, the point of the matter was Jordan spent – the truth is he did not get fired on October 19th, 1980. He quit, and he went on to all these small over-the-counter firms. And uh, that's when we continued our friendship for a year and a half. During that time, I was even more intrigued because I found that there were these over-the-counter firms in the, on Wall Street, small brokerage houses, some of which came to be known as penny stock firms. But they were legitimate, over-the-counter firms, small brokerage houses that existed. The main one that I always watched and saw was this from D.H. Blair. And D.H. Blair was a company for 25 years that did exactly what we later did, which was raise $5 and $10 million for small uh, emerging companies, technologies, medical devices, innovations of all types. I said, this is what I like to do, too. And Jordan was moving from one of those firms to the next until he ended up at a place called Investor Center, which was a, uh, a bad firm, actually, where they were selling these penny stocks. He said he was leaving. He was forming his own company. He had a dozen guys. He wants me to come with him, partner up with him. I'm too good. I'm the best ever. Together, we should have people sell it. And I agreed with him. But I would not do it. I was at Drexel Burnham Lambert. They just paid me close to a million dollars to just walk in the door. I was at Drexel Burnham. I actually interviewed there with a guy named Mike Milken. If you're old enough, you know who that is. If you know Wall Street history, yep, he was the junk guy. bond king in the 80s. And my goal was to work for him there. I was literally the junk stock king of Drexel and Rothschild. That, by the way, along with knowing the over-the-counter market, then later Jordan, this firm, D.H. Blair, that was our prototype, and then Jordan and I starting Stratton Oakmont. Jordan started it literally within two weeks. I came to him only because Mike Milken got arrested at, at Drexel. The company was under indictment soon, and we were all leaving. I was there for under two years. So it was a perfect opportunity then for you and Jordan to connect up. And, and so you were there at the beginning with Stratton Oakmont. But going back to some of those uh, first days with Jordan, in the yeah. movie, it shows you guys going up to a, a pretty nice restaurant. 
And that uh, famous scene where uh, Matthew McConaughey is pounding his chest. Uh, what were those? Uh, how close is that to, to reality? And and what were some of those uh, lunch meetings like that you and Jordan would have together? Well, actually, that is very much real because there's a famous uh, building in Manhattan, six 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 Fifth Avenue. It's actually owned by the Kushner family now. Trump's uh, son. Ah, Jared Kushner and family. Okay. Yes, and it's in the news. It's a beautiful building, famous restaurant up top for many years in New York City. And I was a big restaurant goer, but this one was in, on top of our offices. And um, it was called the Top of the Sixes. So I would probably have lunch there a couple of times a week, along with all the best places. We were uptown, by the way, in the beginning. We weren't downtown actually on Wall Street. L.F. Rothschild and a lot of the firms had offices uptown, and that's where I started. So the top of the sixes was the restaurant where I kind of hold court or have lunch with someone. And uh, so that's what that was. But I have to say, and it's important to me, that it was the character Mark Hanna, which Jordan writes about in the book a little more accurately, although not completely. There's some fiction there as well. Uh, portrayed me a little more so. Scorsese... And McConaughey kind of improvised the character based on that. So the words coming out of his mouth, I can assure you, were not mine. Yeah. And he really was not like me in many ways physically or the language I would speak. But I had to own that because I allowed them to use my name. I signed over the rights, which allows them to do anything with it pretty much. So, but what, what about that word? Uh, it's a fagozi, it's a fagazi. <laughs> but let me tell you something. First of all, that's kind of funny because he's from Texas. And when yeah. you say fagazi in Brooklyn, it's more like that's something that Brooklyn guys say, you know. But um, I think that that's not an exact word I would have used with him. I don't use that. And I certainly don't do some of the other things as this guy did with the how to relax, yeah. masturbation. Never yeah. said that. Yeah. Ever. What, but what about I, some of the lifestyle stuff where they're like, hey, young stockbrokers have got to be, you know, on certain drugs. That God help forbid. You, help you, you to push the buttons no. faster. And... No. Let me tell you something. So, so that, was, we, that was dramatized not true then. Well, when I say that, Jordan speaks for himself later, and that wasn't accurate either. When I joined Jordan, and Stratty's a very disciplined guy. That was the number one thing. Everyday guy, total businessman. And very disciplined with his diet and what he drank. He drank a little here and there. That was it. By year two, he and I, I was not like that. I drank. I was a guy who drank back then during the Wall Street years. I probably drank yeah. four or five nights a week, weekends. So when I talk about drinking, drugs, I did drugs too. We did cocaine. But was I doing cocaine at lunch and in work and telling people you do coke at work? No. Never. It, it was I honestly, business hours. Listen, that's, this is where the, right? not only hypocrisy, but not many people honestly speak the truth. It's either you were a drug addict, now you're sober completely, and you can't. I still have a few drinks here and there. I smoke even a little marijuana. And I have to say, back then, I was a partier. But I also doesn't give any credence or truth to the fact that the whole world virtually... I go back again, my father owned nightclubs and bars, but just America at the age of 16, I'll never forget my high school in Brooklyn, good school I went to, uh, eight year prep school, all boys, man, Poly Prep in Brooklyn, New York, still so proud of it, love Poly. 
And I was a good boy. But my guy's a couple of years older than me. This is in the 70s. I'm uh, graduated in 1978. My grade, too. These guys were all smoking weed. Many. I shouldn't say all, because when you say that, that's usually the people who are doing it. Everyone does. They don't. There's many people who didn't do that. But I didn't even do any of that. But I began to drink on the weekends. The ritual of Americans. Friday night, Saturday night was all it was for me. But when I first started, I loved it, boy. I enjoy drinking, you know? And so, you know, the point of the matter is, though, it still went on to become a college graduate, master's degree, serious about business. I wasn't a drunk. And even the drugs we use, they took those quaaludes and... I would never advocate them for any. Go ahead. No, I'm not saying do. As a matter of fact, you, I'd say the opposite. You certainly have to know yourself, limits and moderation. But I, I can't be the one preaching never to do this or never to do that. But also to say that, in fact, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a fact of life. And you have to put the drinking in with the drugs as well. Gotcha. So, so in reality, the movie, not quite as accurate. You guys were very disciplined and hardworking, which is why you were so successful. But right. sure, smart. Af after hours and on the weekends, there's definitely some relaxation, some partying going on. And so got, got that part accurate, but the movie dramatizes quite right. a bit of that, which is which is The movie showed him in his, year, in his latter years, Leo. I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt. But in, in a few years later, in the beginning, it wasn't like that. Uh, certainly never, from, I've never in my life been someone who's a day and night type of thing. You know what I mean? No. And it was all in its place. And as you got older, you cut things out. Me, I know, in my 30s, I started to cut down on the drinking very much. I hardly drink now, a bit. And, um, but even then, it was for recreational. And that didn't, that, that whole thing with his firm, by the way, Jordan went on. I left him. After a year, I was no longer there. I spent maybe two years and technically with my stock ownership. When I was going to come to him initially, he started with a dozen guys. I was going to be his 50-50 partner. And I was going to be in New York City, Manhattan. He had the operation on Long Island. When I got out to him, I said, why don't you just continue to run this? I'll buy a piece, which I did 20%, and I'll start selling. I'll teach you guys and these guys what to do too. And Jordan was giving meetings, and these guys were selling a, pen, a dollar stock by the name of Price of His Toys. He talks about this in his book. I was the one to come in when I agreed to come with him, buy the 20%. I then went on to buy hundreds of thousands of shares of our first deal together. It was called Ventura Entertainment. He talks about it a lot in the movie and the book, that he, just, he came up with the idea that a $5 stock to sell to rich people I think that was more all of us and a lot to do with me. And I had a huge amount of leads from Drexel and from Rothschild days. My book was from, I had millions of money under management. When Drexel Burnham went out of business, I still had my book intact. And I was being called by many firms on Wall Street with a signing bonus. But I went with Jordan. When I went with Jordan again, I bought this Ventura Entertainment. And that was the first stock he and I got involved in that we were market makers, if you want to call it investment bankers, and that was his first stock manipulation, mm. okay, that I was involved gotcha. with him. We did the next deal and the next, and then I was kind of out of there. I did not like the way he was running things at the helm. But you really, you know, he says this, and I'll leave until the next question, that uh, 
it was never really fraud. I know me. I don't think I did much of anything, and I get into that later. Are you, do you hear me? Absolutely. So would you, how would you say you mentor Jordan? I mean, Jordan kind of got into this business and you were very instrumental in mentoring and teaching him and, and so forth. Would you say, how would you say that went and, and how important was your mentoring to some of his future success? It's not exactly accurate. Jordan was one of many, many people that when we were at Rothschild and Drexel worked under me. I had dozens of assistants from time to time. He stood out and became a good friend of mine. We even vacationed together in the Hamptons and rented a summer house. The wives were good friends. He was not an ordinary guy. But I was teaching him, and we would always talk. But it was not completely like this younger guy teacher. He was a sharp guy. He was definitely smarter than the average and had a lot of things that I could see. Uh, well, what I was looking for, and possibly, I was an entrepreneur at heart, too. Even though I was at LF Rothschild and Drexel, and I would have stayed, I think I would have been made partner, I had always an idea of what could I do if I owned more of the entire operation. And to get into the brokerage business was not a common thing. Absolutely. Hello? Now, what, what led to you and Jordan separating and kind of going your own ways? And, and uh, what was your next step after you guys separated? Yes. What, I, what really happened was that he did not become a uh, – he got licensed. But the minute he was licensed on October 1987, he left. And he went to the other brokerage house. We were separated then. He had worked with me and under me at Rothschild for a year in 1987 and 86. And, he and then – and then you guys start Stratton Oakmont together, and then you did that together for about a year. What led to Two years. Two, two years, years, actually. Okay. Yes. Okay. I and made then, millions of dollars with him, by the way. And when I did leave, it was not on great terms. Although I look back, and I, there was a lot about him I liked, and I always did. But I definitely had disagreements. And even the way he operated his firm, he comes out in his movie and says, I was a criminal, and he knew it. When I came to him, and I guarantee he'll remember this, I said, Jordan, I'm already wealthy man, and I'm only 28 years old, okay? Well, I would never do anything to risk that, and I'm just not that kind of guy either. You're not either. Whatever we do, particularly with these small stocks, we have to be completely within the law. We know that, right? Absolutely, absolutely. We always had that conversation. When I left him, I did not like the way he was trading stocks. And that what, did, what did you not like? He, what, was he dipping into things that were going to well, you know, get you guys into trouble or – Yes. And what I think was the minute I got there, not after two years, but we recognized that owning a brokerage house, making markets in stocks, later doing initial public offerings, but just making markets in these little over-the-counter stocks. Sometimes they were on the pink sheets. Sometimes they're on right. NASDAQ micro cap. Okay. But it is a response. And then you have a sales force and then you have a, you're a market maker. You have other brokerage houses around the world anywhere. So taking all that into hand, if you are now the one to determine prices by taking the stock up vis-a-vis -vis your salesman and the rest of the street, that is a response of you can't do anything wrong with regard to that. Now, Jordan later, when his IPOs, he shows in the movie, he says, I was a criminal, he knew it. And maybe that was later, he was. When he was doing the initial public offerings, every deal he did came from five and went to 25 on the first day.
He wow. created what were called hot initial public offerings. Okay, I never did anything like that, by the way, not even close. Gotcha. I knew that that was going. And But by the way, I write very much about, uh, and this is why I think that I'm not nearly guilty of the crimes that I eventually pled to, is that the regulators, which were the NASD and then later the SEC, were uh, horrendous. I was always glad we were highly regulated. They watched everything we did. And my company was completely transparent. They never said we did anything wrong. But four years after I started, they sued me for everything I did virtually. And that I thought was and very that was, unfair. that was the SEC or, or who came These, out? No, it was the NASD. Okay. The NA SEC was, the, the SEC is even worse, in my opinion. And they, were, they, they came it. after you after the NASD then, yeah. right? When, they, when I say the, the thing that's so unfair also is NASD settles with you. And then when the settlement's done, they passed it to the SEC to do the identical case again. And then when the identical case was brought again, this time we went to discuss with them, they closed the doors because they would, they stopped talking. And then ultimately they didn't even do it. They passed it to the U.S. Attorney's Office in, the, in New York City. Which is so the how, federal so government, how, how which is the worst you thing you could ask for. How do you think you were, where was, was it fair? Was it unfair? unfair. Like how, how so? First with Jordan, I'll get back to saying that he operated for nine years. And these regulators did nothing. He manipulated one stock after the next. And they did nothing. It's almost like Bernie Madoff. They let him go for 20 years. And he wasn't like Madoff. I'm not even suggesting that. But he, uh, you know, it was so obvious a manipulation of stock. And they just did nothing. It gave it the tacit approval. Just like I mentioned to you, this D.H. Blair. They were famous firm that did 500 IPOs. They wouldn't do them like that, with like Jordan. But they'd come out at $3, $4, $5, trade around there. Some took off and were real. That's what gives it the realness. Just like. Uh, Steve Madden. Steve Madden's company is a billion-dollar company, multi-billion. It was a great deal. I bought plenty of it for my clients. So I knew even with my firms later, when I took companies public, uh, I took great companies public that did very well. So uh, are you with me, my friend? So, so where, where is the line crossed, or what, what would you have done differently now knowing you know what you know now versus what you did yeah. back then because there's be, always decisions we can make to kind of avoid right. those issues but i i know i know the regulators out there their job is to number one just take down businesses they're not they're not interested in just you know being objective about who's right. trying to do things right and and number two it, they're not really looking for, out for the public necessarily. They want to make a big news story and make themselves famous because that's all they can do with their job. And that's usually what I've seen. But obviously, people do make mistakes and nobody's perfect. So what, what uh, would you do differently or what did you learn from that experience that other people can learn from as well? Yeah, I mean, I learned a lot, actually. You know, because it, for me... Uh, even though I left Jordan, opened my own firm, was much more conservative, made a huge effort. Everything I did, I felt was legit. The reality of my whole life, even as a salesman at Rothschild and Drexel, I gravitated towards making money, figuring out how to make money, all legal, but there are other considerations besides legal. 
And if your only thing and your main thing, which they taught us, was to make money, to make money, it's just not right. There is something wrong with it, and I know that. That's why I don't say to you today, innocent, and I'm not guilty of anything. When I was charged with crimes in 2002, I went immediately to the federal government with my lawyer, and I said, I'll plead guilty, and I'd like to cooperate, and I told everything what I did. And they said, well, what is that, Mr. Hanna? And I said, that's what I did. And that's if I did something wrong, and again, as I told you, even back at Drexel and Rothschild, I gravitated to these over-the-counter stocks. There were things there uh, where the desk, the trading desk, would give you the stock below the bid or in the middle, and there were, they called them the specials of the day. It was something the brokerage houses did. I keyed in on that. I made triple the commission. So I was not stupid that way. But is that really ethical and the thing for the client? We had gone beyond being even portfolio managers or, um, you know, uh, financial advisors to just being these stock jockeys, as I said, and traders, which I preferred. It was a whole different type of business. But now we were going maybe over the edge. It's that question, you know, I used to, we used to say, look, at people go to casinos and the buyers have to beware. Even when I sold my small stocks through the salesman, I was the master. And I would stand before my people and say, you do not lie. And you do not have to lie about any of this. Not the company, not your responses to their objections, not why they should be buying. There's so much good uh, juice and so much uh, information that you have to share that's so uh, compelling and good. Why would you lie? If you do lie, you're fired. And meanwhile, we end up getting in that type of trouble. By the way, we got in trouble because... Uh, they said some of our trading, which I think was routine Wall Street transactions, were schemes to profit, which I... Well, that's what every oh. Wall Street firm is doing. They're schemes to right. profit. And so it's almost like they, they just tried to identify and kind of just take you guys down, even though probably the majority of Wall Street firms were guilty. But it, it seems like the one thing you're pointing out here is maybe you guys lost focus of the client and providing the client the best result possible for them. And if you're guilty of anything, maybe it's just in the eighties, there was so much taught to young stockbrokers to just make the money, make the money and don't worry as much about the client. Sounds like is, is that part of it? Uh, or what, what, uh, absolutely. Are you kidding? First of all, I was touted for being the greatest. At May, I was a senior vice president at Rothschild and Drexel. I would have been made partner, I believe. And it was only about the commissions and how many accounts you got every month. There wasn't really talk in our group about how is the client doing? Are they making money? Now, obviously, you want to make money. When you lose money for the client, that's not helping your cause at all. And you don't go far when you give someone a trade and it loses. And it loses again, you're pretty much done. So it was not about that. In the beginning, I did very well for clients at times, at times too. So, you know, it, but yet, there is that fine line. And in life, I'm sure there's people in other industries too, ethical considerations, moral, were you good, are you true? But then there's legal. And when it comes to legal, I've, I'm saying to me, legal is with someone, some U.S. attorney, and it's not even them, it's their up above, their supervisors decide, decide, you know what, let's arrest these guys. In mind, the prejudice and the bias was against a small firm. The SEC seems to be, NASD, impossible in New York Stock Exchange to, to police the major firms. 
That's been brought out in numerous articles. If you read uh, Too Big to Fail or anything in 2008 where they, they brought criminal charges against every investment bank for mortgage fraud uh, and securities fraud, and no one went to jail. No one. Only, only small firms. So only small firms kind of got punished, or uh, but the big ones they kind of didn't didn't touch or push as much. That's right. And those same transactions I did were easily, particularly if the regulators said the NASD said these trades we think are excessive or something of that nature, they would have been rolled back during the time when it was done, not five years later. So, and Jordan, it was nine years they let him roll before anything wow. happened. Six, Crazy. seven years. In. And so, so the point is that even, they really, the bias comes because the major investment banks, it really is corrupt because the major investment banks are the biggest donors. This is where Bernie Sanders and the left are right. Even though we need Wall Street, it's, you tell me, should we have a Wall Street bubble even if it's a fraud, is it better than not at all? I mean, that's almost what the question is sometimes. Crazy. Crazy. But, yeah, but the fact of the matter is that the, the firms, all, if you look at the major investment banks, they're not just Republican. They donate equally to both sides. Absolutely. And what does that do? It seeps down through the system to the U.S. attorney's offices. They are very well protected. No question and about it. who don't they like? You know who they didn't like? My company, by the way, in the end, I had 500 guys in two offices in Manhattan and Long Island. And I also dealt with firms all over the world. Right, so we, they, we were opening 100 accounts a day, Wow! my salesman. 100 a day. All of these multimillionaires, over 2 million, I told you. Wow. I was generating profits in the area of maybe 25 million a year at that point Unbelievable. at the corporation. So, so, so then you, know, you went you, through and, and finalized with the government and, and uh, you yes. know, did the time there. And now you come out and you're helping businesses to uh, stay on the right side of the legalities, but more importantly, to help them with their sales process. And so right now I'd like to kind of open it up to where you can uh, talk about all the businesses because there, there's an opportunity for new entrepreneurs and startups and established businesses to be able to work with you. And I know a lot of companies have seen success working with uh, Jordan Belfort and his sales systems, but a lot of those were right. actually taught to him by you. So tell us about uh, some of the opportunities that entrepreneurs and business owners can have working with you and uh, how you can help their sales floors and sales teams, especially over the phone, you know, really dominate. Yeah, you know, I know because I've been doing this for the last few years that uh, where I would like to help and I can do a lot of um, coaching and inspiration and guidance for individuals, individual people who want to come to me and I can help set up in small business. Of course, there's the larger corporations or guys who own a team of salesmen. Any of that, uh, these people are viable people. You know, I get into other areas of just personality development and human development. I became a student, as I was, of salesmanship and marketing, student of just uh, excellence in performance. So I think what I teach goes beyond sales, but one of the, I think, the area immediately for people who are interested in realmarkhanna.com and what we're going to do, or virtually anyone interested in getting into business, 
really, which is a global business, contacting people all over the world via the internet and telephone. So many different areas, even if I guide you into insurance or mortgages, which are great areas also, and we explain exactly what. For anyone who wants to really, the key to success in life, which I learned later, literally in prison, you know, is to overcome all negativity, to be a powerful person, and how to do that, and how to really teach others to be that way too. To be more competent, more educated, more thorough. How to be businessmen. You know, that's, I'm, I actually am involved in speaking on a few things. And, you know, the free market, capitalism makes what makes America great. I loved what I did because it was like the one time in my life we had the freedom, you know, to open up your, your expression. Your business is your life. That's another thing. Jordan, myself, we were New York guys, but we are business-oriented, money-oriented, and, and in a positive way now. It's got to be. And I think that's the word that has to be spread. I think that, that you know, what's, what makes our country, thank God, great. This is where I cannot go necessarily with those who bash business or demonize businessmen is that it's industry and business that's going to provide. And to do uh, that these days, that requires capital, which I help people raise and can, through my own company, or through teaching them, help them raise monies for their efforts. Beyond that, it's learning. And so we have a master class in teaching virtually anyone to be in their own business with a computer, telephone from home, uh, and not only that, but a choice of so many different things you can market and sell around the world. Outstanding. Travel, so guys, it can be magnificent. Guys, if you're listening right now, you need to go to Real Mark Hanna. That's Real Mark and then H-A-N-N-A dot com. And uh, you can go to, you know, check out some of his uh, videos and uh, lessons there and then contact him so that he can help guide you with your sales process and, and mentor you to build the right sales scripts and the right information so that you can succeed as an entrepreneur, as a business owner. If you've got uh, a sales organization and you're seeing issues, and especially if you're in finance and you're doing sales over the phone, there's a lot of keywords and language and tips, obviously, that you need to know. Now, something that you did bring up there that, uh, that caught my attention a little bit, Mark, yes. what, do you, what is your reaction to the media and all the negativity about business and capitalism, and I'm seeing articles that capitalism isn't working. What's your response to that? That's, you know, and that's what I'm saying, and I actually hope, you know, whether it be through podcasts, and I wanted the viewers to know that I do uh, like come out to your office, wherever you may be, or uh, to your group and give a presentation based on a lot of this too, because what I speak of is then and now. And it's a, the, it is the question of the day, wasn't it? And it is the Democrats, some representing what they call socialism and supposedly capitalism on the right, I don't know. But if you really look at it, and there's so many ways to analyze and to speak on these things, it's an emotional issue. You know, you're a capitalist, some people call you a pig and will hate you now. Okay, but and if you're a socialist, the others don't like you. They think you're a communist. But all these things are becoming ridiculously 
uh, ill-defined, number one. We have social programs in this country already. We are capitalist, no doubt. Capitalism is not the uh, perfect by any means. There is the 99% that are really not the 1% where the money lies. How can you say capitalism is perfect if 90% of the people still are uh, not ex excessively wealthy or at any level? However, let's really look at the world as it is today and throughout the last hundred years. Capitalism has its issues. 90, the 99% does not include uh, billionaires. That's the 1%. So it doesn't necessarily trickle down. And there's a mass underclass here in every capitalist country that they say that even, um, you know, these are uh, being sublimated in capitalism, these people. They're not thriving in the capitalist system. But I ask you, what entirely socialist system has made it at all? You know, I'm, I'm not aware of I'm not aware of any, no. and the only one that I think that you could point to with some measure of success is China's. Mm -hmm. But China's is more of yes. a capitalistic society That's right. when it comes to business, which is what's brought them out of poverty and built their That's own right. class. So, right. so you're you're absolutely right. The question is: Is there a better system out there? And the answer throughout history seems to be that capitalism is the best system. That's right. Let's look at Germany. Japan, yep. uh, North Korea, Singapore, Hong, anyone who embraced free markets, and not only that, the freedoms of, of liberalism, liberal with a capital L, not democratic liberal, freedom right. of liberalism, republicanism, we're a republic, and the freedoms of the individual uh, in business, you know, and so, so we don't demonize. So, and I do believe, though, you have to have social programs. There are just too many people. No question. Impoverished or coming up who are not willing and thinking. They're thinking that major corporations are screwing them. They're not paying taxes and they're not uh, paying their share. So look, some, there are times the majority of people agree with Bernie Sanders and there should be a wealth tax for billionaires or people earning over two, three million. Yeah, that is debatable. And some of these social programs, even the ultra-right capitalists know you have to have some social programs. We have them. Okay? So it, that becomes the issue. But for me, I think the promotion becomes, yes, what do I promote? The answer is big part, business, free markets, and capitalism. It is. And to open it up for more people, and then to have a social conscience, of course. Infrastructure Amen. and all the rest. Yeah, we got to get look. The one thing I can tell you, which is more on the subject of my criminal justice, is I look at these politicians and they sicken me. And I, to me, they're all. You call me a criminal? How about them? Mark, Mark <laughs> so, who's, who's going to solve all the big problems of the day? Is it going to be government or is it going to be entrepreneurs? That's right. But I do believe it's got to be good government where the le the right, and I'm a slightly more to the right on some issues, but. Uh, you know, they believe that that the government has got to, to be less government. And I do agree. We have the biggest uh, government in the history of the world. How, so to say we're going to have no government is idiotic. You know, we need it for military and so many other basics. But maybe the other way, too much of a bureaucracy, not good either. We know that.
uh, a, nice, a nice balance. Yes. And I think free markets are the key. Actually, the thing that makes people go so much for uh, the right are the low tax, in the tax environment and less regulation for, in, for businesses so that there's a freedom to do and less corporate tax. Taking that down 20% sent the market up. And it's a haven now for people all over the world. Money again here. The big money flees if the taxes are too high. No question. Sits on the sidelines outside of right. our country, not benefiting us at all. Well, right. Mark, we really appreciate uh, your insights. Uh, again, the opportunity to work with you as an entrepreneur, business owner, or sales manager is an amazing. So where's the best place for everybody to connect up with Mark so that they can you know, work with you, have you on their podcasts, and most importantly, increase their sales? They can contact me through realmarkhanna.com. Leave their email, uh, phone number, phone number 347-319-9058. Anytime, leave a message. And we will get back. We're there. We can come to your offices or you can come to us in New York City. Perfect. So that's real Mark and then H A N N A dot com, where you can just go to the contact button there. Again, uh, bring in some of his content and the, the actual one, probably the top mentor for Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street, and someone who has been incredibly successful and then rebounded, you know, and, and learned a lot throughout all the processes and, and journey in your life. Well, Mark, we really appreciate uh, your time today. And uh, looking forward to bringing you back on the podcast with uh, different updates. And I know you've got uh, some additional programs in the works that are really going to help a lot of entrepreneurs build their business. Thank you very much, Leon. Are you looking for more seven-figure secrets, content, or even how you can launch your own recession-proof business? Then check out sevenfigures.com. That's the digit seven, F-I-G-U-R-E-S.com, where we share more videos, stories, strategies, funding solutions, entrepreneurial education, and even the secret business type that's recession-proof. Thank you for listening, and if you're finding value in our podcast, please give us a five-star and invite others to join the club.